Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Lessons in Chalk Modeling, written by Ida Kassa Heffron and published in 1900. This book looks at the new method of map drawing as it was at the turn of the 20th century. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to all the listeners who reached out during the week. Thank you to Nicholas Gray Mandino for reaching out on Instagram. I'm so glad you're finding the podcast beneficial. Thank you to Mystery Podbean Listener for your lovely review. And finally, Thank you to Spotify listeners Zoe Lang and Dolly for your lovely comments on Spotify's Q&A. If I've missed your message or review, please let me know by contacting me via the website. As always, I am truly grateful to the listeners that support the show with a monthly contribution on Patreon or Anchor. The podcast is free, and it is thank you to listeners like you that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes. I do understand that not everybody can support the show with a financial contribution. If you find the podcast beneficial, a huge favour is to leave a podcast review. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can always say hello to me at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Lessons in Chalk Modeling A New Method of Map Drawing Preface In preparing the following lessons, in answer to the demand of the public school teacher for such assistance, the aim has been to present them in such a manner that both teacher and pupil may, through the understanding and acceptance of the steps involved, become expert in the development and delineation of original maps showing surface structure and relief. To this end, suggestions vital to the success of the would-be mapmaker will be found in the introduction. In part two, it is aimed to show that, with a clear mental image of surface forms and areas, the expression of the same will be a simple and easy matter and a valuable preparation for the mapping of large areas or continents. 
For the illustrations, a medium has been used, which in many respects closely resembles in its results on paper the texture of chalk on the blackboard. The author desires to acknowledge her indebtedness to Francis W. Parker, the head of the Chicago Institute, late principal of the Chicago City Normal School for help derived from the study of his works, and for the rare educational privilege enjoyed while working as a member of his faculty, especially were the discussions underlay his leadership at the ever-to-be-remembered weekly meetings, a continual source of inspiration. Under the new light thrown upon the subject of geography, as presented by Colonel Parker, the impulse was first received, which afterward bore fruit in the development of a new method of map drawing, a method which it was desired should be an adequate expression of the solidity and continuity of the continental land mass. The necessity for such a map Colonel Parker had himself realised for years. With a desire to meet the pupils' needs in this respect, Upon further study of structural geography, the idea was conceived of drawing maps which would show mass without outline, and which would also represent relief. This method of map drawing was called chalk modelling, and from the first crude effort in this direction by the author, in the year 1891, at the Cook County Normal School, the chalk modelled map passed through many stages of development until it reached its present form. Thus, to Colonel Parker himself is primarily due whatever of educational value has resulted from the invention of the author or redevelopment by others of what is called the chalk modelled map. Acknowledgements are also due Miss Louise Barwick for the zeal displayed in forwarding the development and delineation of the maps of the continents and for valuable assistance rendered in the drawing of the same as illustrations for this work. Part 1. Introduction the fundamental object in the study of geography, as we understand it, is to acquire mental images of the present appearance of the Earth's surface, its structure, the rocky material of which it is composed, and the causes and effects of its changes, as a preparation for the home of organic life. It is a study of the earth as a material basis for the evolution of man and the development of civilization. It leads up to a search for the laws and workings of the creative forces, forces relating to our planet and to the sun, 
the central source of light and hate. This study has a different meaning to different persons. To one it means the study of all that lies between the covers of a book or memorizing other people's sayings. To another it means connected information regarding the condition of man's life on the planet. Again, geography is a description of the Earth's surface or anything that affects or it is affected by. A more common definition is geography is a description of the Earth's surface and its inhabitants. An ability to recognize in present environment that which leads to an understanding of geographical conditions in general is much to be desired and is the aim of the teacher of the present day. Geologists tell us that the same processes are going on now that have ever been in operation in the fitting of the earth for the habitation of man that these changes are taking place is implied in the very fact that we are studying the Earth's present appearance. The study of the history of these changes and of the nature of the earthy material as shown in rock and soil and in vegetation and of the influence of heat, light, air and moisture means the study of all the natural sciences, not as special isolated studies, but bound together in one great whole. So closely are they related, merging into and impinging upon each other as they do, that there seems to be no place or line of separation between them. The larger part of the surface of the earth nearly three-fourths, is covered with water, and the action of this mighty agent under the influence of that great dynamic force and life-giving energy, heat, opens an immense field for investigation. These combined influences constitute the study of the environment of all organic life, and knowing these in a given case we get an approximate idea of the stage of development, the development of man, the highest type of organic life, depends largely upon structural, climatic, vegetable and animal environment. To know these is to understand his habits of life, his reasons for choice of homes, and to judge of his probable advancement in civilization. The powerful influence which the physical features of the Earth's surface have exerted in shaping the current of historical events can hardly be realized until thoughtful investigation of the subject has been made. The knowledge of geographical conditions as climate, mountains, valleys, rivers and seas, with vegetable and animal life, gives us the theatre of action for events in history. As the mere existence of mountain range, desert, 
sea, or river may be essentially the influence which has led to the growth or downfall of empires. It is clearly seen that a sound knowledge of structural geography is absolutely necessary for an intelligent study of history. No general relation of important occurrences can be traced without it. Nearly, if not equally necessary, is it in the study of literature. In order to properly appreciate the works of our best writers, both of prose and poetry, an acquaintance with nature, a scientific geographical knowledge, local and general, is very essential. It forms a basis for the correct understanding of books, since the best writers and thinkers of all ages have been students of nature. Their writings are filled with lessons and illustrations, as well as generalizations drawn from close observations of her methods. If then, a knowledge of structural geography is requisite to the true understanding of man's relation to man and the world around him, it becomes important that the subject be presented in such a manner as to attract and hold the interest of the pupil, and properly presented there can be nothing more interesting than the study of his immediate environment, that which touches him in his everyday experience. This study of his immediate environment is essential to the forming of mental images of areas and surface forms outside and beyond his sense grasp and to a comprehension of the structure and surface contour of the world at large. Such mental images being fundamentally a necessity to the delineation of adequate structural maps of the whole or any part of the Earth's surface. The study of geography, which in the past consisted mainly in the memorizing of meaningless names, with little or no exercise of the reasoning faculties, or opportunities for making generalizations through acts of comparison and inference has been superseded by instruction of a more rational order. We have learned that to memorize names and locations of mountains, rivers and lakes without seeing their relation to a whole or to why only superficial observations of extended areas of land results merely in indefinite mental impressions leaving out the very basis of all concise and clearly defined geographical knowledge, to the end that definite mental images may be acquired, field excursions under the direction of competent leaders are now advocated, and when entered upon with an intelligent purpose are held to be indispensable factors in the correct study of geography. Under these conditions, the intelligent purpose and the competent leader 
The pupil who visits a lake is likely to have a more adequate mental image of the old ocean. The one who has never seen a lake or other large body of water. One who has seen low hills with their outcropping rock and the action of small streams upon them will have a better idea of what mountains and rivers may be. In the new education, the pupils are thus in the field lesson brought face to face with nature. Through these lessons, the powers of the imagination are quickened and strengthened by the continual observation of surface forms. The true basis for all attempts to image the structure of the earth. Inferences are made at every step of the way as to the history of the physical features observed and the nature of the forces that have acted upon them to shape and distribute. Areas and forms of land are constantly being compared as to shape, size, width, length and height, and simple generalizations formed from direct observations are combined with other generalizations to form those that are higher and more comprehensive. This is but a brief suggestion of the part the field lesson bears to education in general. In the particular study of geography, it must be borne in mind that no essential knowledge can be gained, except through close observation of the Earth's surface forms, as the true teacher of science in his classes in botany or zoology leads his pupils to an individual study of plants and animals, and also to a study of these in their surroundings, their social relations, so also the student of geography, goes directly to nature for all fundamental knowledge pertaining to the subject. Field lessons, though conducted mainly as contributing to the student's fund of knowledge, are also a source of pleasure and may be made the foundation of a more healthful love for and delightful companionship with nature. They are not alone a mine of knowledge, but also a perfect wellspring of inspiration. In every stream plain and valley, new beauties of form and colour are continually presenting themselves. Varying tints of landscape vistas, drifting cloud masses, softly rounding hills, majestic mountain forms, the play of sunlight and shadow, all make subtle appeal. Entering into harmony with creation, we are led into harmony with its source. Everything combines all the wealth of colour, warmth of sunlight, song of birds, hum of insects and breath of growing things, conspire to the unfoldment of the being on all the planes of life's expression the first and controlling impulse is toward expression. 
expression on the physical, mental and emotional planes in fulfillment of the law of growth for expression is a necessity to growth. Expression. Geography has been said to be an analytical study of the Earth's surface or the study of the separate landscape elements such as form, colour and organic structure. Geography is emphatically a study of form. The forms of the Earth's surface features each to be studied in relation to other and contrasting forms as well as in relation to their environment. Upon the pupils' return from the fields, the forms and areas observed may be modelled in sand, sketched on paper, or chalk modelled on the blackboard. Maps may be drawn of the areas studied, and sketches may be made in colour of stretches of different soils and verdure together with the atmospheric effects observed. Tints of sea, sky and cloud, colour and shades of rock and foliage are all speaking in tones which the child may interpret. It is of great importance to his future growth that the student acquire the habit of freely expressing himself through the art modes of modelling painting and drawing, since much of his mental power depends upon such expression. For by holding in mind, while in the act of expression, the images acquired through observation, more of the details of the object or scene, as well as the generalities, are recalled. Expression thus reacts upon self, causing the mental picture to be intensified and expression to become more definite and complete. And no other means are so adequate to this end. The forming of distinct images in the mind, unless it may be giving an oral and written descriptions. These, of course, should be demanded of the pupil as well. By this demand, the pupil sees the necessity of closer observation and investigation that he may give a fuller and more truthful expression. And with careful leading, he becomes a critic of his own thought and skill, which is a step preeminently educative. Aim of field lesson. A direct purpose or aim of the field lesson in teaching geography should be to form a clear idea or mental picture of a river basin as a basis for imaging other river basins and as a unit for the study of the continent or all land surface and to know the river basin is to know its history that is the history of the river itself, its valley, and the story of its building and shaping. It may not be possible for all students to make a study of the whole of a river or brook basin, yet it may be done by sections, getting a general idea of the slope of the riverbed, 
water parting, slope and valley, the action of the forces of nature may also be seen in the changes now, going on in the different sections, the cutting back of the stream at its source, its eroding power, its carrying power, and its building or levelling power. If it is not possible to take the children to the field for nature study, they may find fruitful sources of study without. City schools. Nearly every schoolhouse has some surroundings that may be studied to advantage, except those in closely built city streets. But even in such cases, there is always the work of rain, heat, frost and wind to study, as well as insect life, the drifting of sand and snow, the frost on the window panes, the forming of ice around doors and windows, and the effect of heat in its melting raindrops, clouds, puddles of water, in the slight depressions of sills and walks, with tiny streams flowing therefrom, are all to be observed. Where did the dirt on the windows and sills come from, especially after some snowstorm? Tiny seeds in the corners where the winds have left them, insects in the spring, where did they come from? Where were they all winter? There and other many hints may be given for such study. The country furnishes a rich field for investigation. Around every building and in many localities that can be easily reached, most of the types of the earth's surface forms may be found. Care must be taken that they are considered as types, or the pupil might answer them the question, how high are mountains, as the child did who said in reply, two inches high. In the lower grades of school, much of the geography work should be direct lesson in the field, followed by lessons in school. The higher grades also should continue the frequent field excursions, which are begun in the lower. Brook basins may be studied as presenting many if not all the features of the river basins. Maps may also be of these areas, as well as detailed drawings of special features. As has been said, the pupil should model and draw continually, in connection with or after every lesson in the field. It is the very best method by which to attain mental growth and should of course be the genuine expression of his own mental images gained through observation. He should model and draw all surface features or areas seen in the excursions. He may model in sand, putty or clay, maps of the areas of the schoolyard farms or parks in the vicinity, or chalk model them, then indicate upon them the boundaries of any subdivisions they may have, such as fields, clumps of trees, 
houses or other buildings. Let the pupil also sketch on the blackboard imaginary scenes and typical features of other areas and countries under the same or contrasting climatic and other conditions, always questioning as he draws his mental picture if of a river, for instance, what is the cause of its rapidity? What is probable depth and effect on the soil? Why it cuts here or builds there? And why the slopes back of it are terraced as they are? If he represents islands, he should ask himself the question, why they are rocky or alluvial, i.e., what is their origin, and never represent in any expression that which is contradictory and so untrue to nature. Landscapes typical of the different zones of temperature, showing characteristic structure, vegetation homes, habits and occupations of inhabitants may be drawn. Maps also of these areas and those adjoining, may be chalk models. As the mind becomes stored with separate images acquired through actual observation of areas of the Earth's surface, gradually by the combining and blending of these, a new mental image, a comprehensive picture is formed, corresponding in the main to the general features of the whole Earth. With its uplifted masses and lower plains, its natural divisions of continents, seas, and oceans, its atmospheric and climatic conditions. If the habit has been formed of chalk modelling imaginary areas, as well as those within the sense grasp, it will be a comparatively easy matter to chalk model a map of the whole continent. On this, the student may mark the boundaries of all political divisions as he studies them, and locate the important cities and places of interest. Practical suggestions before we leave the subject of field lessons. Some practical suggestions in regard to them are here offered. Actual observations may be made on the action and effects of rivers, underground water, rain, wind, heat, and frost. The effects of glacial action and the eruptive forces of nature may also be seen in places. To study river action, it is not necessary to visit a river. Any small stream of water, any tiny rivulet beside the roadway, tells its story of wearing and building, its vertical cutting and its swinging from side to side. It has a miniature valley, its basin and water parting, and possibly a delta at its mouth. It may also have its cascade or waterfall, the wearing of rock through the influence of rain, frost and heat may be seen in any stone building, fence or pavement. 
effects of heat and moisture on vegetation as influencing the growth of plants and trees should be noticed. The growth of shrubs and trees during a dry season can be measured and compared with that of wet seasons. The observer should mark the effect of vegetation in the action of rain on a grassy slope. How the grass protects the soil, preventing it from being washed away, and how by holding back the water so that it flows more slowly, it is less destructive in its action. To add to the interest, the pupil may be led to imagine the effects upon climate and streams of the denuding of large areas of their forests, also how rock sculpturing in the forming of gorges, canyons, etc. may be modified by the volume and force of streams. Observation should also be made on the making of soils, their constituents and relative proportions of loam, sand, gravel and clay, and the relation of these to plant and animal life. The part that the common earthworm bears in constantly uniting, enriching and otherwise preparing the soils for the support of vegetable life, may be seen in many areas. It has been computed that in one year several tons of soil are brought up and distributed by them within an area of an acre of land. A study made of the action of underground water, as shown in common and intermittent springs, would be full of interesting suggestions. The effects of glaciers may be seen in parts and their tremendous influence imagined by the presence of the countless numbers of striated boulders, pieces of rock and pebbles, which are strewn all over our prairies hundreds of miles from any mountains, which could have been their home. It is not necessary to witness the devastation of a cyclone in order to study the effects of wind action. The piling of sand on the seashore, the drifting of snow on the whirling of dust in the street illustrate this. The observer may notice where the dust blown from the street has choked and buried the grasses and the weeds beside it and imagine what might be the fate of forests in the path of enroaching sand dunes. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I also hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the podcast. Until next time, good night.